Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Bobby Burns. And I'm Paul Sexton. Around the world and into your home, the stories that touch your life. This is Wayward Weekly. Welcome to episode 10. All right, Paul, let's dig in. Last episode, we talked more about behavior change um, for quite a bit, and then we talked about some of the protests. When we recorded that episode, uh, by the way, it was Saturday morning and kind of really before anything got too crazy. Um, I felt a little bit hesitant releasing it because we released it like in the middle of the week at like the height of everybody's emotions and, and things going on. Um, but, and I feel like, um, what we discussed might've been less important than probably what everybody was feeling at the time. But you know what? Um, I just released it and said whatever because um, we touch on some topics that I think are important and kind of relative to what's going on. And I think that's what we're going to dive into today. So do you have any questions or anything to recap from last episode before we begin? Not really much of a recap. Um, I'd like to move forward with the the protest, but I did have one question uh, for you, uh-huh. and I w- just wanted to see if like you have been asked this as you work with children um, in your practice. Um, do you ever have uh, family members that will push back because you don't have kids? I mean, yeah, we we have family members push back for I mean every reason imaginable, right? Um, <clears throat> The families we're working with uh, oftentimes are still st- trying to, to cope um, with what's going on. Uh, um, so most of the kids that I work with have ASD or they might have some other form of disability. Some just have behavior issues. Um, we're not often working with typically developing children, um, although we could. Uh, that is just not what people are giving out funds for. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, in that most of the families that we're working with are sort of coping with the realization that, um, you know, there's not a magic pill, uh, that is going to just make everything better. Um, and so in that, I mean, we're faced with a lot of different pushback, right? I, I work with family, uh, families I've, I've probably worked, so I've done this for 14 years. I've probably worked, uh, with over 300 families, I would imagine, Okay. So I've gotten every type of walk of life imaginable in California. Um, we get pushback from parents who, um, think they, they know better, um, because it's their kid and we haven't taken the time to get to know them. Um, and, and that's definitely understandable. That should change our behavior, right? Should tell us we should take the time to get to know people more because they, yeah, they find that valuable. Um, we would call it building rapport. Um, and so, and I mean, part of it's true, right? I don't know their kid, but the, the thing with behavior analysis is behavior is the same no matter what. Most of the foundational research that was done for ABA, <clears throat> uh, you take a guy like Ivan Pavlov, Ivan Pavlov in 1898 published a paper worth, uh, uh, with about 10, 10 years worth of research on dogs salivating. And that's how we came up with the ideas of, um, um, what is it? Oh my God. Sorry. It is 10 o'clock in the morning and my brain is not firing on all cylinders (laughs) just yet. Uh, it is, 
respondent conditioning, which means respondent is like a reflex and condition is learning. So reflexive learning or learning to have your reflexes happen with something else. So a dog drools, which is a reflex. Um, I can't tell you, hey, Paul, start producing a bunch of saliva and you can do that. You have no control over that. It's a reflex. But I could teach that reflex to happen at times when when it wouldn't normally happen. Um, So I could uh, teach you to salivate at the sound of a bell, which is what he did with the dogs. In fact, and he wasn't even trying to do that. He was studying how they digest food. And then we had um, just a year later, uh, this guy by the name of Edward Thorndike published a little bit of research on cats and solving um, puzzles to get out of a box and getting food as a reward. And um, you have uh, Skinner who used pigeons and rats um, and a few other people in between who are using mice and different things like that. They all learn the same way you and I do. We just have a, a greater capacity to learn. And so there is a fundamental um, <clears throat> misconception about behavior analysis is that um, some people learn differently. And I mean, while this might be sort of true when we talk about styles of learning, we all learn the same way, cause and effect. Okay? Nobody yeah. learns effect first and then cause and tries to figure it out. It's just, you know, what happens is you touch the stove, your hand gets burnt, you learn not to touch the stove anymore. And some people go, well, my kid just, he doesn't learn that. And he doesn't learn that way. We all do. Everything learns that way. What you're saying when you say that is your child has no intentions and is not looking for any outcomes and doesn't understand any outcomes. Yet those same children that parents might say that about understand how to work an iPad perfectly. In, in an iPad's cause and effect is exactly the same every time. And so what happens is a lot of the kids that we work with are just, um, they learn how to do something one way. And if something has some variability to it and it's in its types of outcomes, um, they either give up and don't try with it, or they persistently try the first way they learned over and over and over and over. Um, <clears throat> so we get pushback about a lot of different things because I don't have kids. Absolutely. I mean, people push back because I started doing this job when I was 21. I was a supervisor at 23. So here are some 30, 35, 40 year old parents. And there was younger ones too. And in comes this 23 year old college kid. Okay. And, uh, I asked them to do something. I asked them to, um, shut off the TV and don't let their kid have it. Okay. And they go, what does he know? He doesn't have kids to a certain extent. They're right, Paul. I don't know. I don't have kids. I don't know how tough their day is, but I do know it's going to work because all behavior works the same no matter what. Okay. If your kid starts crying because he's not getting TV and they go, "Ah, he's just not getting it. He's not going to get it. Okay. So you think if we don't ever turn the TV back on that we'll wake up tomorrow and he'll still be crying and a week from now he'll still be crying and 90 years from now he'll still be crying over the TV. Eventually he's going to stop. What I didn't get and what I didn't understand when I was 23 is that (laughs) that's tough to sit through for someone who's been working all day. Oh, absolutely. I I didn't realize a lot of parents don't have the same energy that I like. I didn't understand that those things really changed over time. And so if anything, now I have a a much better picture of what is realistic to expect out of a parent um, than... 
than um, than what I did before. And look, I mean, also at the time I was 23, I didn't have all the answers. I got things wrong sometimes. And so you get it wrong once. Okay? They they expect you, you know, to have all of the answers immediately and have it solved by next week. And now like, dude, when I was 23, I didn't explain to parents what to expect, how to expect it, how long it was going to take. I left it open to them for interpretation. <laughs> they yeah, don't know. Which they've makes never, it tough. Yeah. They've never had anything like this happen before. The closest thing they've had to it is like maybe physical therapy for a broken arm. So we'll be done in three yeah. months. Absolutely not. The f- well, it's go ahead. Well, it's a very it's a very personal experience too. I mean, um, I think a lot of times parents will feel like when you're trying to change a behavior and the behavior isn't changing um, right away, and you're telling them to do this thing, and they're watching their child, you know, struggle and oh, yeah. uh-huh. you know have emotional oh, yeah. responses and everything. They take that as a reflection upon themselves. And there's other examples that you can pull because, I mean, we all have opinions, even though we may not be living that particular experience. Uh, my sister likes to watch this show called like My 600 Pound Life. And there's a commonality with Paul, all Paul, you this. used to watch that show too when we lived together or something like I, that. I, 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 I vaguely remember that. I, I don't know why. Because it would when piss I watch me it, off so I, I like. Well, I can't watch it anymore because <laughs> it makes me it makes me sad. Like these people are, are suffering and then they have a camera on top of it and mm-hmm. everything. But it's illuminating as well because you see uh, their caretakers a lot of times. You know, these these individuals are so overweight that they're bedridden. They can't even get up to care for themselves, meaning they can't clothe themselves, they can't wash, clean themselves, they can't fend for food, so they rely on this caregiver. And then this doctor comes in and says, you're killing this person. And their response, the caregiver's response is always like, you don't understand. Right. Like, I love this person. You don't understand. The doctor's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You're in this habit loop and you're going to cause the death of this person because this person cannot get the food unless you're providing it. So you are... And it's it's so hard when for you people look to at take it, responsibility in that way, you know? Well, and when you look at it from an outside, though, I mean, both sides are sort of right, okay? Yes. The, the doctor doesn't yeah. understand because this person also, not the 600 pound person, but the, you know, normal sized or, or just the one who's not 600 pounds, the mom or the dad or the caretaker, or the brother, or the sister, or the husband, the wife, whatever. Um, they don't understand the history of the relationship, the habit that they have, the, the way it makes them feel taking care of that person. And so like, yeah, the doctor, the doctor doesn't understand the feeling and the patient doesn't understand the reality of the situation. And, and there's a mismatch there. And that's why bedside manners are so important because you got to get on the family side. I mean, if I've learned anything, um, over the past, you know, 14 years of doing this stuff, um, it, it wouldn't be, I've learned more about behavior analysis and how it works. Like there were definitely things I did not understand and I wasn't doing right. And, um, you know, that, that's just the way it is. Everybody's got to start somewhere and, and you're going to make mistakes and be wrong. Um, but, uh, if anything, I've learned really to, um, set the parents up for success by explaining to them what the expectations are and, and being on their side. Some of the things that I did when I was first a behavior analyst, like telling the parents to just shut the TV off and leave it off and let's sit through it. Um, I don't do that anymore. And the reason is twofold. Um, the reason is, is because 
when I first started doing this, the state of California was funding about 30 hours a week. Okay. Um, and so we would go into the home 30 hours a week. I wouldn't, I would go into a kid's home for maybe 10 hours a week and he'd have three other therapists go into his home for 10 hours a week for a total of 30. If I missed one session, that parent was calling me, calling my supervisor, um, and, and saying, when are you going to make this up? And when I say miss, like call in sick, you know, I call in sick and they go, okay, well, when are you going to be here? You're going to be here Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, what you need to come and you need to make this time up. Because they saw what we were doing as extremely valuable because the more time that you invest in it, the more time we're creating new habits, the quicker all of this stuff goes. And it's just, it's exponentially quicker. It's not like, oh, three times the amount of work, like three times the speed of progress. Like, no, it's three times the amount of work. Like it goes up like 15 fold. Um, <clears throat> so. So these parents were not only all in, they trusted us. They, they saw how well ABA worked because they were doing 30 hours a week. What has happened is that the state of California um, didn't really know why we were doing this. Okay, so the, let me go back. The foundational research uh, that led to doing ABA therapy for, with kids with autism um, was published uh, sort of multiple times. There's this guy, Ivar Lovas at UCLA. Um, he started applying ABA to children with autism. And like we get pushed back everywhere. People are like, isn't that the guy who electrocuted children? He did shock therapy, right? Your field's bullshit. And it's like, okay, yes, actually, yes, he did do shock therapy with children, okay? And then it's like, ha, huh, now you're admitting it. You know your field comes from a bad place. No, no, no. Did you read any of the research about the shock therapy? Because what he did is he took children who were engaging in self-injurious behavior, smashing their heads into their poles, walls, hands, biting through their own flesh, okay, who were in restraint jackets, stray jackets, strapped down to beds and tables. They were in uh, intensive care in a hospital. Uh, Intensive care is probably the wrong term. They were hospitalized and strapped to a bed for six months or more, all of them. It was three individuals. And what he did is he used shock therapy. Every time they did one of those behaviors, he shocked them. You know what happened in a few months? They stopped doing that. They were able to get out of the hospital, a life where they would have been strapped to the bed for the next 50 years until they died. And now they could go out and back and live with their families. But fuck him, right? Because he electrocuted children. But that's all people yeah. know is he just did shock therapy. Look, I, I don't know what's right. I don't know what I would want for my child. Every parent consented. Don't blame him. Don't make this out to be like, you know, oh, I, I don't know. I'm ranting. Um, so anyway, <laughs> anyways, he publishes some research. He says, uh, if you provide 40 hours of ABA, not shock therapy, okay, which he used ABA as or, or shocking as part of the ABA therapy, but just straight ABA therapy. Um, yeah. He took around a hundred kids, uh, something like 50 to 60% of them, Paul were rehabilitated to the point of being completely indistinguishable from you and I. Typically, if you meet an individual with autism, you go, something's up. This person's a little off or it's extremely clear. It's not something's up. It's a little off. You're like, something's clearly different about this person. They, yeah. they're, they're 20 years old and they don't talk and they're wiggling their fingers in front of their face. All right. So that's over half. Um, there are three levels of severity to ASD, um, mild, medium, and moderate, or now it's level one, two, and three. What did I say? Mild, medium, and moderate. That is not at all what it is. <laughs> mild, moderate, and severe. Um, 
And so, um, back then it, it was that now it's levels one, two, and three. And so another 20 or 25 percent ish, um, went from a level two to a one or a level three to a two. And the last 20% still made gains, but, um, it wasn't enough to change them any levels. So, um, so, I mean, there are, are times and situations where ABA isn't the most effective. There are definitely predictors of um, success, um, but really the, the biggest indicator being how much time is being had. Now, why am I going into the history of all this is because, um, remember, I said I don't do things the way I used to. And what happened was the state of California got that research in the 70s and 80s from Ivar Lovas and said, oh, my God. So what you're telling us really is all of these individuals, because the state of California cares for individuals with special needs. They turn 21, 22, their parents can't t- uh, take care of them anymore. They have to put them in a home. They have to pay for that for the rest of that individual's life. And for any yeah. type of food, any type of assistance bathing or going out into the community programs, nobody likes to see them sitting at home all day. So we pay extra money so that they can go on, you know, d- to the mall and walk around because we feel bad that they have to sit there all day. Anybody would uh, feel bad about that. So we decided to pay for all those things. You have to pay for it for the rest of their lives. The state of California looked at that and said, you mean we can cut our cost by 60% in 20 years? Let's invest in that. Let's start paying for the service. And then in about 20 years, all those kids who were supposed to then go into homes aren't going to be there. In fact, they're going to be tax-paying citizens. This is a wise investment for us. Well, 20 years later, it was 2005. And people are like, why are we fucking doing this? We got to cut budgets. We're in a war. The economy's starting to tank. And guess what? So they take it from 40 hours to 30 hours. And that's what it was when I started doing it. The state stopped funding for 40. They started funding for 30. And they dropped it to 25. A year later, they dropped it to 16. Then to 12 in 2008 when things really tanked and about 10 after that if you could get 12 when they were only giving us 10 hours a week it was amazing you must have fought so hard to get that okay and what happened is ABA slowly over time became less and less and less and less and less and less and less effective and now there is a group of parents who they they have a child with autism and they're not hoping for it and, and they don't know anything about autism really other than what they see on billboards and you know that it's on the rise and like wasn't it at one time caused by um, uh, vaccines Jenny McCarthy wrote a book on that and um, you know so we we kind of hear these things in the background um, so anyways what I'm trying to say is that these parents slowly got desensitized to less and less and less hours. And now we're in a culture of parents who only received 10 hours. And and when I say culture, what I'm meaning is their support system. They get a child with autism. They meet the other parents in the class who have a child with autism. Nobody knows that those families whose children are five years older or 10 years older who got 40 hours and saw the really great gains. And so they're not asking for that. They're not fighting for it. And when I offer it to them, they're like, but when's he going to have time to be a kid? And I go, this is what I say in my head. It is not what I say to parents. I go, if we don't do this, when is he going to get time to be an adult? That's a good point. So, yeah. Um, in look, That's not even a guarantee for everybody. That's a guarantee for like 60% if you had Ivar Lovas doing your ABA. Is everybody as good as Ivar Lovas who had a PhD in behavior analysis or child development or something like that and it was brilliant and got assigned a position at um, UCLA? 
Absolutely not. He was the top 99% of all behavior analysts. Chances are you're going to get someone in the bottom 50%. Well, actually, your chances are one in two, right? Um, So uh, I don't know. Anyways, I'm going off on tangents. Your initial question was like, do parents ever give me pushback because I don't have kids? Yeah, absolutely. People people give pushback to people all the time for shit that they don't have or they don't do, right? Um, They say, well, you wouldn't understand because you're not this or you're not that. Paul, you couldn't ever understand racism because you're white. Okay. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you can't understand the feeling that they're going through is sort of what they're saying, but you can understand racism still. You've been discriminated against at some point or another. You grew up in Los Angeles. I'm sure you went to a part of town where you were the outcast. Yes, you only felt that for one minute. So you could never understand the long, long terms long-term emotional effects that that has on you, the psychological effects, the way that it changes how you approach people and how people approach you, okay? You could never understand that, and I totally agree with that. But that doesn't mean you can't understand racism. People tell that to me all the time. I have friends say that to me. They're like, Bob, dude, you just don't get it. You don't have kids. And I always want to respond to them and be like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't have a master's degree. And that's such a yeah. shitty thing to say. And I it don't believe just it. the conversation. Yeah. It, yeah. But it doesn't. It, yeah. It's just like, oh, let me insult you for a second. Yeah. Let me just say yeah. you, you, this is something special for special people and you're not special. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, you don't have to have a master's to understand behavior analysis and how children work. And you do not have to have a child to understand how behavior changes and how to raise Same a with child. The law. Now, yeah. yeah, I will say it's fucking hard. I get it, dude. When we talked about this last episode and the episode before this, I mean, something I want to point out is I definitely emphasize that we fail at 99% of all behavior change. I, I get that. I fail at all of my stuff all the time. I start working out and I stop. I start reading and I stop. I start running every morning and I stop. I stop eating healthy and or I start eating healthy and then I, I fail at doing that. And then I you know, try to not drink so much and then I finish a six pack of beer in a night. And, you know, I fail all the time. Behavior change is hard. I get that, you know? So, yeah. um, so people like to say that all the time. And I mean, I think it's really a cop out for, um, a, a greater conversation to be had in our emotions. Like we don't like, I I'm sure a parent doesn't like to admit that there are things that can be done and I'm not doing all of it. And so we tell ourselves stories all the time to kind of protect ourselves from feeling bad. Yeah. We tell ourselves stories that, um, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so has gone to a better place and they're looking over me. So I don't feel bad that they're gone so I can deal with it. So I can cope with it. It's a coping mechanism. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. I, you know, for, for people who are understandable, it's understandable. You know what I realized yesterday, Paul, and maybe this is a good point to, to move on, um, to, um, you know, the protests and what's been going on this week. I, I, you know, kind of a mantra, um, it's, can't you understand you, and, and you, yeah. you need to be able to understand. Can't you understand? Can't you understand, understand where this person's coming from? Yeah. If you can't understand that, I think the one thing I want to do when I have children is if they ever do things that they get in trouble, I don't want to send them to timeout. I want them to come back to me with an answer. Come back to me, go sit and just think and come back to me when you understand. 
and give me an answer and try and explain, you know, why we shouldn't do this or why we, we should do these things. I want them to be able to empathize with other people. Can't you understand how black communities are feeling in America right now? Because if, if you can't, it's hard for me to have a conversation with you if you're not attempting to empathize and vice versa. Can't you understand where all the racists are coming from? Yes, I don't give a shit, but but I get it. No, I totally get it. It's not. It's, well, that's the thing. You're yeah. You're not making excuses. You're providing an explanation. Like you understand bingo. where racism and, comes from. Yes. Either it's you're brought up around a community that is uh, racist oriented, or you have a negative experience at some point in your life with a particular community and that defines the rest of your perception and we would both say that that is lazy because you're basically taking an innate trait and you're applying it uh a a negative observation about an innate innate trait to the entire population that has that innate trait and that is lazy you're not understanding the content of one's character you're just you know, making a blind application to all of them. But but there's a reason that they do it. They were born with parents who were saying those things and doing those things. They were exposed. So Sarah and I had a long conversation last night just about this and, and our role and our position and, and trying to understand things. And what I really realized is uh, this lady... So we went to three protests in the last week. Um, we went to one... Uh, and let me also preface this... Not preface. I, I don't know. Let me also just preface. give the disclaimer that all of these uh, were in communities that were predominantly white um, and heavily Asian. Um, we went to Torrance, California, Redondo Beach, California, and Palos Verdes to the Trump golf course. Um, and, uh, Fancy. and so I can sit here and go, and they were all great and they were all peaceful and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, the cops in Palos Verdes weren't like thinking shit was getting crazy. They didn't show up in riot gear because why would you show up in Palos Verdes in riot gear? Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're sitting around millionaires who, you know, when you go up to, to a home, it's probably typically over something like domestic violence and drugs up there, but prescription drugs. And it goes back to all the white collar shit. And it's like, I mean, that in itself is sort of like the idea of white privilege is that you have a different culture of cops in these rich white communities. But anyways, um, I don't want to dig into all that cause I don't really understand it, but I'm just saying it's not exactly representative. Um, it's, it was great to see so many people out there and supporting last Sunday when we went to Gardena uh, no, Torrance. Um, there was uh, probably about 300 people. Um, it was organized by some of the high school students over there. Yesterday, we went to one at Redondo Beach um, in the earlier morning. It was uh, organized by uh, somebody who just finished their sophomore year of high school right across the street. He organized the whole thing. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, Good for him. It was fantastic. And he, <laughs> he got up to talk and uh he is just like, uh, so I did not expect anyone really to show up to this. Uh, I just figured it would be a few friends and, um, we would try and stand up for some of the injustice that we see. And there is 300 people. So I, I don't know. I didn't really prepare anything. Um, if someone <laughs> wants to come up and speak, but, but it was cool to see a 16 year old boy do that. Um, and then we went up to the Trump golf course because that's like an, um, 
an icon, right? Because it's Trump's yeah. golf course. Um, people yeah. were protesting there. And so, um, I mean, for me, I didn't really want to go at first. I had done a lot of the Occupy Wall Street stuff in the past. I'm like, eh, protests aren't really um, productive for for change. In my head, I'm like, I can just sit at home and read, think, watch videos, formulate ideas, have conversations with my friends and really try and further, you know, how we should go about this stuff. Um, but after going yesterday and just really seeing how many people were there, um, and, and seeing that it wasn't like that when this happened four years ago Absolutely. and six years ago and 10 years it's ago. It's a worldwide movement now. It is a worldwide movement and why? And so a little bit of that is because they saw other people protesting. And so part of it is now I go, it's almost good to show up just to show the numbers because people can start getting on board and hopping on board. The younger generations, that kid who organized that yesterday uh, was 10 when all the riots uh, started happening in Ferguson. Um, mm. and so that 10 year old boy saw some of these things and saw, this is what you do when there's injustice in the world. And all those kids who were 10 are now 16 and they were 12 and now they're 18 and they're standing up and they're fighting and they're coming out in numbers. And I mean, look, 75% of the cars that drove by yesterday were honking their horns. We had a few people flipping us off, yeah. screaming stuff. Very, very <laughs> few. I would say 1% or less. Which, yeah, which yeah. definitely pissed everybody off. And it's hard to sit and, there and say, well, come on, guys. Like, that was one person. You have 75 exactly. people honking. But at exactly. the same time, that one person could be the person having kids and, and um, you know, making that individual. I started this out by saying I can understand where the racism um, comes from. And what I wanted to say is that person, that child who was raised with parents who are saying that thing, is given such a narrow narrative to con to to confront situations with okay they're told that people are a certain way and that's all that they can ever be and they're not exposed to seeing uh different stories okay so other perspectives yeah. their perspectives i mean when we're kids so a librarian got up yesterday what i really wanted to say is a librarian got up yesterday at one of these protests that i went to and she spoke and one of the things that that she said that really resonated with me like immediately was like if you have young kids you need to get them to read and you need to get them to read tons of books from tons of different culture get them outside of their comfort zone get them uh or outside of what you guys know get them to start understanding different people and different perspectives and i really thought about that and and i think you know, we think in stories when we're young kids, um, you know, we're always imagining things and picturing things inside of our head and watching movies and TV shows. And, um, and so, um, you know, if you have, are a child who's been exposed to all these different types of things, when you're confronted with a situation, you don't just have one narrative to explain what's going on. Now you have 20 different ones to, to select from. Yeah. And I think that is something that, that is really, really important for um, us to understand is that a lot of what's going on is that people don't have different narratives and it's our job to try and give them a different narrative. The challenge becomes, Paul, how do you and I give these people a different narrative? Because you know what? If I'm being honest, I think that some of these people who are leaning towards racist tendencies 
who, who really think that, you know, black people are just more likely to commit violent crimes and they're more likely to do this. And that's just the way they are. And that's the way it's going to be. I don't think that any of the protests are going to change their narrative and they are going to raise kids and give them that single narrative. And so our job is to figure out how do we as non-protesters, as white people, as people who they can relate to, how do we gently give them a narrative that they can accept? Yeah. Well, in that narrative that you uh, just explained is a narrative that I heard uh, by a woman named Candace Owens. Um, she's a, a black conservative woman. And she was basically saying what uh, you were saying that uh, some, you know, that black people commit a dispor- disproportionate uh, number of crimes. I, I even was though not, they're, I was not well, you saying, saying that. that. You were saying, saying that, that, that some people say exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, exactly. And I hope everyone so, understands that. Yes. Yeah. Someone, uh, someone tried to say, um, I don't think I brought this up on the last podcast at all. Someone was trying to say like, um, uh, the people of the black community kill other black people. They kill, you know, black people, black on black crime murders are about 2,600 a year, but cop on black murders are only, um, 260 a year or 360. Um, so you tell That's me what who Candace the, was saying. Yeah. So you tell me who the real enemy is and it's like, exactly. Oh, a little bit of information is fucking dangerous because you just said something really stupid. You did not look at the rate. You looked at the frequency and frequency does not tell us shit. Well, okay. It, well, it, it's different. There's an underlying problem. Like she was saying that, that, you know, uh, black individuals are, are, are committing all of these crimes and it's up to them to not do this anymore and to step up and be better citizens. But what she and she said that there's no evidence of racism. But you brought up Ferguson and Michael Brown was uh, I think he was, you know, 16, 17 uh-huh. years old. Uh, he was killed because he was reaching for an officer's gun. But prior to that, he strong armed a liquor store clerk. Yep. It was caught on video and all of that. And the uh, after they did an investigation, they found that that the officer had the right to use lethal force because. Michael Brown was, in fact, reaching for the weapon. But what they didn't do is look at why would someone like him in his position be that angry at that particular point in time? So the Department of Justice conducted an investigation and a study into the city as a whole to determine why there was this level of anger. And they found out that it's because the black populace there were being unfairly targeted by police for economic reasons. They were basically fleecing African-Americans in order to uh, um, maintain the level of income coming into the city. And it got to such a point that it reached about 30 percent of their overall income was coming from these fleecing operations. And I'll give you an example. I'll read because I was reading the report myself. If you can all look it up, I'll post it. Who did the uh, investigation? It was the uh, Department of Justice. The Department of Justice. That That is fantastic work from the Department of Justice, because I, uh, from a from a behaviorist standpoint, right, I think that every human capable uh, every human being is potentially capable of anything that other human beings do and so when you see someone like michael brown you go that could be me and people go bullshit i would never do that yes you would you're a human being this person is just a reflection of you think hard what well, like would what it you take said. 
for you to do something like that. Okay. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like you said last podcast, like yeah. it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to get in trouble. Let me just but, give you a just really quick. I want to, I want to sure. finish that thought. Like what would it take for you to grab a police officer's gun and shoot them, Paul? Okay. You say, I would never do that. Yes, you would. You absolutely would. Okay. Would it take them arresting you once or twice? Probably not. Would it take them then picking on you after that? Probably not. Would it take them coming to your door and executing your mom right in front of you? You go, yeah. well, maybe that one cop, but not all cops. Okay, what would it take for you to feel like that about all cops? What if they come back the next day and then execute somebody else and somebody else and somebody else? And you go, well, they're not doing that. Okay, but some people feel like that's what they're doing and they were born in a situation that does that. You, so you would do that. There is a situation not, in which you would. Okay, But it's not the overall cops. It's not like overall cops that are doing this. A lot of times they are victims of the system themselves. Sure. I'm, I'm not that saying starts, that it's all cops I, doing I know. it. I'm just saying exactly. like, people, we say, well, I would never do that. What would it take for you to shoot an unarmed black man? Okay. And I go, well, I yeah. would never do that. Yes, you would. That's like saying, well, I wouldn't have been a Nazi if I was in Germany. Well, you're like, just saying we're human. You're, you're That's saying, all I'm you're trying saying to that say. we're human and but, we're all capable but of... But we don't yeah. like to admit that. Me saying like that I am capable of being that cop that shoots an unarmed black man, I'm not saying I'm racist. What I'm saying is I would have been a Nazi if I were in Germany. I would be a Buddhist if you raised me in Japan, and I would be Muslim yeah. if you raised me in Afghanistan. I am saying I am human, and so are you. And if you're saying you are not, then you are just so fucking unique and better than everybody else. Goddamn good for you, but we can't all be as fucking special as you can. Well, we're basically saying that we're all capable of bias. We're all capable of racism because we're human beings. Yes. Sorry, human beings I also just make... <laughs> Keep going. No, well, and I was just going to read, there's... I'll. I'll basically from the Department of Justice report. But good for them, the first, for the Justice Department, for for examining what does it take for somebody to get to that. Because didn't I get didn't get reported, though. What was that? It, it, didn't, it didn't really get reported. This report came out a couple years, I think a year or two later after the Ferguson incident. By that time, it's like, oh, we moved on. But, at but the least real story people- was the underlying systemic racism that was occurring in this area. And let me just, let me just, yeah, I'm going to read go a paragraph just with some overall statistics. And then I'm going to give you an example from the report itself. It says, the Ferguson Police Department from 2012 to 2014 shows that African Americans account for 85% of vehicle stops, 90% of citations, and 93% of arrests made by the Ferguson Police Department officers, despite compromising or comprising only 67% of Ferguson's population. African Americans are more than twice as likely as white drivers to be searched during vehicle stops, even after controlling for non-race based variables, such as the reason the vehicle's uh, the vehicle stop was initiated, but are found in possession of contraband 26% less often than white drivers, suggesting that officers are impermissibly considering race as a factor when determining the search. The report goes on to say, too, that not only were the executives of the city, the, you know, those, the mayor, the city council, or a driving force behind this, but also the court system itself. So these individuals could not get relief from the police and they could not get relief from the court system because they were operating in conjunction with each other. There was no separation of powers. And let me just read you an example uh, uh, that was uh, stated in the report. 
Um, and it was an encounter between the Ferguson Police Department and a, uh, an African-American individual. It says, even relatively routine misconduct by Ferguson police officers can have significant consequences for the people whose rights are violated. For example, in the summer of 2012, a 32-year-old African-American man sat in his car cooling off after playing basketball in a Ferguson public park. An officer pulled up behind the man's car, blocking him in, and demanding the man's social security number and identification. Without any cause, the officer uh, accused the man of being a pedophile, referring to his presence of the church, uh, the children in the park, and ordered the man out of his car for a pat-down, although the officer had no reason to believe the man was armed. The officer also asked to search the man's car. The man objected, citing his constitutional rights. In response, the officer arrested the man reportedly at gunpoint, charging him with eight violations of Ferguson's municipal code. One charge making a false declaration was for initially providing the short form of his first name, example, Mike instead of Michael, and an address which, although legitimate, was different from the one on his driver's license. Another charge was not for wearing a seatbelt, even though he was seated in a parked car. The officer also charged the man both with having an expired operator's license, with having no operator's license in his possession. The man told us because of these charges, he lost his job as a contractor with the federal government that he had held for years. They were fleecing African-Americans at the behest of local leadership in order to make money for this city, even though they were found to be in possession uh, 20%, 26% less likely to be found with contraband yeah. in comparison to yep. white individuals that were stopped. Right. This is the bubbling. This is what Candace Owens fails to realize is that there is an underlying current which leads to systemic racism and no one questions it. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but my hope with this whole entire thing is that this is like the Me Too movement for women – but for cops in this particular manner, the benefit of the Me Too movement was women coming together and saying, oh, my God, I'm not alone. I am being I am being harassed at work. I'm fired if I don't comply. We are not going to stand for this anymore and we are going to go to the streets. And the benefit of, of the Me Too movement was women felt comfortable to out their bosses yeah. To out people that were harassing them, to take legal action and to not live in fear as they should of doing the yeah. right thing and holding these people accountable. So my hope is that the majority of officers that are out in the field, like my brother in law, are amazing people. They are doing the right thing. But they all know of officers that are doing the wrong thing. And are harming the perception of the police department as a whole, which is the result. So everyone thinks that the police department By not doing are, anything about exactly. it. Exactly. So maybe this will be the catalyst to give the good officers the impetus to say, you know what? Enough is a fucking enough. Like, we are done with this. If you're making my job harder, making me look like an asshole or a racist because you're in a position of power and you're abusing it, we're going to turn you in. And then the higher ups are now going to be incentivized because of public uh, pushback to take action 
yeah. in these uh, situations. If it's not their that's job, that's my hope. If it's not their job to do that, then whose is it? it? It shouldn't be my job. It shouldn't be your job. It shouldn't be the black community's job. It shouldn't be the civilian's job to check these people. They have to yes. check each other. You know, I, I just like I think, Paul, that it's your job and my job to really communicate um, with, you know, people in our community who just aren't getting the message. I think that, um, and, and I don't know if we're doing a good job on this podcast, to be honest, I think we're just ranting, um, you know, as opposed to like trying to gently explain, we're forcefully throwing some of these things out there and getting a little bit pissed off. I honestly can't imagine somebody who doesn't agree with us already listening to this and going like, huh, they got a point. I imagine them going like, well, but you're not accounting for, for this because, um, you know, there were this many black people who, uh, did that. And that's, that's more than the police did. And it's like, yes, but there are more black people than police make the two numbers equivalent. Those things change. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit torn with um, with this podcast and how we're doing it because because it is our job to attempt to get the message to people who who aren't understanding some of this stuff. Um, but we're on point with them, though. Like the, the the people that would oppose what we're saying right now would be upset if we were saying, you know what, burn everything down, continue the looting because every single cop is bad. They only get in there because they want to abuse power. Listen, the legal profession has the same exact problem. There are people that get into the legal well, not possession, even with possession the cops, because I, it's power. I'm thinking of like the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I, I mean, uh, there are so many people I've seen on P- Facebook who are saying, who might be listening to this right now and going, but Paul and Bob, Blue Lives Matter. Like- Come on, this is bullshit. There, people are they they're all out there looting and this and that. Yeah. But but it's our job to take those people then and not not go. Come on, like like we're getting really heated up about this, and I don't think the blue life matter person is going to listen to me at all right now. I don't think they're going to take me serious unless I very calmly say something like, "Look," <clears throat> and a lot of the blue lives matter things that I see are from police officers or or. Um, the wives of police officers or husbands of police officers. And so what I would say is, look, imagine you're, you're, um, you're not feeling well, you're not looking very good. Okay. Um, and you go to your significant other and you're like, do you, do you think I'm pretty? Paul, you might not say this, but a woman might. And (laughs) your significant other goes, well, I think all girls are pretty. Does that fucking make you feel good? Is that what you wanted (laughs) to hear at that point in time? Or Paul, you go, you go, Hey Bob, like, um, I did this and I did that. Um, do you think that that's a good idea? And I go, well, all, all ideas are good. Paul pat on the head. They all, all, all ideas are good. Paul, does that make you feel good? No, I'm looking for some validation right now. When we say you're talking about sympathizing, yeah, black lives matter. And you say all lives matter. That's exactly what you sound like. You sound like yeah. someone's coming up to you and going, well, like, do you think I'm pretty? And I'm, and you're going, well, I think everybody's pretty, you ugly piece of shit. Like, that's not what you say to somebody who you that's think is pretty. You go, I think you're the most beautiful person ever. Of course I think you're pretty. Okay. Yeah. So when someone say black lives matter, you go, of course your lives matter. You, you, every, you know, you say everybody's life matters. That yeah. is just dismissive. You say, of course your life matters. It matters to me very much what happens to you. It matters to me that you are able to get equal pay, equal education, equal health care, that you can feel safe, that you don't feel like people um, 
or judging what you're going to do walking down the street just because of your skin color. You matter. Your life is special to me. And that's in police matter too. That's that's that you and I are not, but they don't are, are, need to be told they're special. The the police are special. Yes. When you say blue lives matter, you're saying, come you're saying, well, don't you think the police are pretty? Okay. Well, and it's ex- like, exactly. they know they're no pretty. One. They're getting it all right now. That's not the issue at hand. Okay. I, I, I'm kind of following it. I'm a little bit, well, when people say the Blue Lives Matter thing, it's it's taking away from Black Lives Matter, okay? It's it's saying, <clears throat> you Paul, you come up to me and you go, do you think my idea is smart? And I go, yeah, I I think you're smart, uh, but I think this guy's smarter. Okay. I think this guy's smart, I, I too. I see what you're, and it, I, I see what you you're saying. You are not getting that, you know, Bob, did you you're think that was a really good idea? And I go, yeah, that was a good idea, um, but but this is a good idea, too. Yeah. I, th- right? Does that, you would go, oh, okay, he doesn't think it's a good idea. Yeah. That's what it's taken. Like, if if you were put into that real situation, when people say that, the people who are posting these, it, you could sit there and you can disagree with me. You can hear this and go, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so next time you're in that situation and you ask me a question like, don't you think that's a good idea? I'm going to say, all ideas are good ideas. And let's see how you react to that. You're going to go, Bob's a fucking dick. Yeah. Because you're you're not taking you're not taking them seriously, and it, it's kind of that um, it's almost like that insecurity um, that we were talking about before, where you think if you say Black Lives Matter, all of a sudden you're saying police don't matter, and that's yes, not the point. That's not the and point. It, so it's that personal like parent like reaction, like you don't understand, you don't understand. It's like, but but we're not saying that. Like we do understand, and like I'm saying, you know, uh, most police officers are could but they have these systems and these people that aren't held accountable within that system and it and it sheds a negative light upon the entire force so my hope is that officers will have a means now to say hey if there is a cop that is just control hungry and they're abusing people and I know uh, most cops know officers like this that they will feel comfortable saying hey you know what it, it, we need to turn this person in because it, uh, they're going to lead yeah. to less law the, and order. Like, culture. I don't want to get to a point where there's no cops. And I, I don't think anyone don't think on the Black me- Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. nobody wants that. <laughs> no. Nobody wants self-help. I mean, it used to, it was legal to, to ha- have a spring gun in your house, a loaded shotgun with a string that would run to your door. And if there was a trespasser that came by, they opened that door, boom. But not only, but the problem was though, is that some of the owners were getting killed too because they would forget that they had the spring gun there. They'd <laughs> open walk. their own door, yeah. yeah, or that too. But you don't want self self help, and I think people may think, oh, well, you're just watering this down. Like, like we're with the Black Lives Matter movement. We're with that, and the blue, the people that are saying blue lives matter, it, it's a reaction. To the thought that the people that are for Black Lives Matter are somehow against the lives of all police officers. And it's this black and white sort of world. And I'm not talking about race with black and white. I'm just saying that everyone lives in a world of absolutes. 
there's just systemic problems in certain areas, certain departments, and some are worse than others. And some of them end up like Ferguson, where you have a population that is just being fleeced. I mean, you know, you have fines that start off as $150 and then they end up arresting individuals, issuing warrants. And then they end up having thousands of dollars in fines and they can never pay it. And there's no there's no other relief program, no community program saying, hey, you know, you can't pay the fine. Well, let's use your time to improve the community then. And I'm saying, like, if it's a legitimate ticket and the person can't pay, listen, we're going to use your time and you just have to clean up this uh, roadside like they typically do already with probation departments and everything. They'll just have you go clean up a, a roadside one day and they'll have a crew that follows you and everything and you spend a few hours and that's just what you do. It's better than imprisoning people right. and putting them into a, de- a, a perpetual debt that they'll never be able to pay off. So I'm just saying there are better solutions to this and I hope that the outcome of this will officers will feel comfortable like my brother-in-law if he knows of an officer that is abusing his power that he'll say you know what I don't even have to go to eternal affairs now I can go directly to my leadership and tell them hey we've got a time bomb here this guy shouldn't be in the force he's disregarding the way in which he was trained and he's abusing the public we need this guy out of here and they do an investigation and then they get him out of there yeah they get him out of there no no no, like a two-week furlough and uh you're gonna be you're gonna have to sit down and think about it like right no if someone has like 17 violent yeah 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 get him out of there like you said a cause and effect cause and effect if officers are finding that they don't have employment because they're abusing individuals well, then maybe that'll be the catalyst necessary for change. Yeah. I think that um, there is a huge culture, though, within police uh, mentality in general, where people join, um, you know, and they think one way um, and they are then changed by the culture of the police department and begin thinking another way. I mean, I, yes. I've had countless conversations with people who have become police officers um, and some of whom I know really well and some of whom I don't where they, they go, Bob, you just don't get it. Like these people are never going to change. Um, and so there is this idea or this culture. When I say these people, I don't mean black people in general. I mean, people who, you know, they're arresting people in poor communities. Like that's just the way they are. So I think something about police culture that could help it change is they don't see, um, any reform coming from prisoners once they're let out of jail, the rates of recidivism rate, you know, I rest the same guy time and time and time again. And blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, because they, we're putting them back into the same environment. We're not training them. With a act- felony. With, they can't get employment. They can't get employment. And you know what? Something um, Mike brought up um, over the week. Uh, what he was saying is that, um, you know, I kind of proposed to him like, oh, we get do away with this whole checkbox thing. And um, one of his friends comes on to his comment, uh, his his post like it. And um, just like people do on, on Facebook. I feel like people on Facebook are, are just like, I don't like it. Next, get that out of here. And like, it was just, this guy's like, uh, yeah, very idealistic, but very naive. That's all he said. And I, I said, cool. Like, why do you think that? And just no response. Like I, I literally wrote out like four paragraphs, like, oh, we could do this or that. Like, I'm not committed to the idea. What do you think? And he just says idealistic and naive. Cool. Good. Yeah, good it, job, buddy. Thanks. You really contributed. Uh, let me well, just yeah. let me just shit on people really quick. Why they're you know at least just trying so to talk about things. 
Yeah, you're flipping off someone yeah. in the, the opposing well, so car. I, I you're not that. teaching a lesson. You're just flipping someone off and saying, fuck you, and there's there, no discussion. But that's why I think there's a problem with social media. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Yes, like, it is. You we'll know, get into it. I but. don't think anonymity is a good thing online. I think you should know. And people talk about whistleblowers all the time. Like, like you know, well, they have to have an anonymity for whistleblowers. Like, how many people on Twitter are whistleblowers and have, you know, Edward Snowden type of information? They yeah. don't. Yeah. It's just people hiding behind a moniker and they're saying a bunch of horrible shit that they would do in their vehicle when someone cuts <laughs> them off. It's like, well, I'm going to speed up and I'm going to and I'm basically going to do the exact same thing that they did to me. Fuck them. Yeah. It's like, well, you're not teaching a lesson. I, the person doesn't know what the fuck you're talking did about. Did you see that episode of Black Mirror um, where like they have the rating system and when you look at people like their ratings come up and stuff? stuff i don't know if i saw that one no okay so there's one i think it's the first episode of episode three or season three um and uh um it's it's like facebook but when i look at you paul like your your numbers pop up and how many friends you have and like who we know and have in common and like your facebook profile just looks up uh, or pops up when i look at you because we've got a little computer in our eye or something um yeah and anyways part of the idea fascinates me because, uh, I, I used to do, and sometimes we'll still do, uh, interviews, um, for my company. And, uh, my biggest pet peeve in the world is when people do not show up for their interview. Like they literally will book an interview <laughs> and then just no call, no show. And I'm just like, God, I wish we had that in place so I could give them a zero right now and be like, did not show up or call. Dude, just call. I don't care if you're not coming, but don't make me read your resume and print everything out and get ready and think about what questions I'm going to ask you and then sit there for 15 minutes and then call you and say, hey, is everything okay? And then never hear back from you and wonder what went on. Like, Holy fuck! If I could give that person a zero, I would love that. I would oh, love I'm for start that to you resumes. <laughs> I would, I would love for that to follow them for the rest up. of their life. When people start the job and and we say, "Are you sure you can do this?" Because you know this and that, and they're like, "Yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it." And then like three days, and they're like, "I quit, peace out." And we're like, "Dude, we just spent two thousand dollars training you." And they're like, "Yeah, I know. See ya." <laughs> so I can't wait yeah. till that. Um, but anyways, um, to, to get back to what I was saying, um, with, uh, with Mike is that, um, I, uh, I, th- I threw that whole, uh, checkbox idea on there. And the idea was, is that, um, we have this check. So, so when somebody gets out of prison and they go to apply for a job, um, they have to check off that they've been in prison and that discourages everybody from wanting to hire them. Meaning this yeah. person now who is attempting to do the thing that we want them to do, right? We said, you are selling drugs. That's bad. Go to jail and think about what you did because we don't want you doing that anymore. And then they get out and they go, okay, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'll get a job. And then we go, no, you don't get a job. Be out on the streets and don't have any money and be poor. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to selling drugs then. Like, how long are you yeah. going to have no money for? What else are you going to do? What and they're else like, oh, well, you shouldn't have been selling drugs to begin with. And it's just, but that's what, the, that, but that's the frustration with all of it. Well, first of all, the, let me, this wait, is wait, let me finish. Point. So the, okay, the, the idea from Mike was, look, we can't get rid of that checkbox. That's not fair to people, you know, uh, employers, like they have a right to know who they're hiring. And it's like, 
on the one hand, I sort of see where you're coming from, but on the other hand, half the people who come in lie anyways. I know tons of people who are just like, oh yeah, I just lied. I just said I had that degree or I just said I did this. People don't check. And it's just like, yeah. oh, holy shit, man, you're a horrible person. Okay. Um, but uh, he said, well, why don't we incentivize people to hire felons? Why don't we give them tax breaks or a government type of stipend for taking on that amount of risk into their company? And I thought that was at least a fantastic way to begin um, the process of reintegrating some of these people because we just don't have enough reform. And it's bizarre. If if these cops who I was talking about who say, you know, well, that's just the way they are. They're never going to do, you know, this and that. Then why are we ever letting them out of jail to begin with? If you don't think people can change, one and done, take them, lock everybody up forever and throw away the key. Well, that's why I laugh when people tell me that uh, free will exists because the law basically... Um, says that it doesn't exist. They, oh, once you're a felon, you're always a felon. We, for sexual crimes, if you're uh, someone that's committed sexual crimes in the past, we allow that propensity evidence uh, into court to show that you are in fact a sexual deviant and right. always will be. They're saying that there isn't any free will, um, which, is, which is interesting. Um, but again, that's that's aside from the point. Sure, but, but I think what there, you're saying is needs- that if we thought that that was the case, we wouldn't let people out to begin with. We do know yes. people can change. We do yeah. believe it. Our system is just not allowing that to happen for people. And unfortunately, yeah. we all know that there are more black people incarcerated in America than there are white people or any other ethnicity. Okay? And because of that, we are now perpetuating a system in which their kids, them and their kids are going to continue to be the ones ending up in that. And that is what needs to get changed. And we need to discuss it and, and figure out a way to do it, man. Because look, I live right next to uh, Compton and Inglewood and all the places that you heard in rap songs th- throughout the nineties, you know, it's Gardena, then Dominguez Hills, then Compton. It's Gardena, yeah. then Inglewood or Hawthorne, mm-hmm. then Inglewood. Like these are my coworkers. These are, you know, the people I, I shop with at the grocery store and who, um, you know, sell me food and I work with their families. This is my community and I yeah. want something to change for them. Okay. Because yeah. it affects me and it impacts me. Um, because I care about them because I want to see them do good. I don't want that to stay like that forever. I want it to change and I know it can. Well, and that's why they're pissed off at the the government is because, uh, especially in California, it's typically uh, liberal leadership. And they constantly say, like, vote for me and I will help you. I will be the one that, you know, that instills change. And then they get in there and then it's the same thing. And it's because the system itself needs to be reformed. These communities need more resources. They need schools that are stable. They need after-school programs to limit uh, gang involvement. And these things do cost money. But like you were saying, this these would be preventative measures just like uh, ABA would be for someone that's suffering from a de- de- developmental disability. It yeah. would it would basically decrease costs over time because we end up spending an inordinate amount on enforcement and then incarceration and then nothing changes. So you'd have to start it from from the ground up and these systems have to be reformed. It doesn't mean throw it out, but it's just it's basically everyone's throwing up the flag and saying, hey, the government isn't working. This needs to be reformed and we can be doing better. But the politicians that go in there. They say one thing and then once they're in, they do another. And then yeah. these communities are left to suffer. And we're wondering, like, why don't they turn out to vote? 
because nothing happens. Right. And now the whole entire United States are on board saying, wait, nothing is happening. Nothing is changing. It's awful for these individuals that they have to face this over and over and over again, generation after generation. And all we're saying is that we can do better. It doesn't mean that we hate America and we need to throw out the Constitution. We got good bones here, man. We got a good structure. We got a good frame to our house. The thing is, is that the eaves are starting to look a little you know, shabby. The roof is starting to leak a little bit. A little bit of so mold inside the drywall. So we need to tear that down. Yeah. yeah, tear it down a little bit and rebuild it so that it's structurally sound and so that it works for everyone. Has that ever and happened? And it's not going to be easy. Has that ever happened to a nation where they just tore it down a little bit and rebuilt it? Uh, not that I'm not that I'm I mean, aware of, maybe, but the United States is a perfect example. We, I mean, it was an experiment. Yeah, I know, but we we, we, we had built from we, the ground up. I'm just saying, like, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. there's like there's ever been a time where someone's like sort of tore down the country and then rebuilt it and it did well. But I actually, well, that's war. a lie. That's a lie. I mean, civil war. Yeah, Thirteenth Amendment. No, you're yeah, right. abolishing slavery and involuntary mm-hmm. servitude. Yes, there have been uh, no, right. moments within That's this nation where it has led to uh, necessary change. Yeah, and we've all benefited because of that. It's and sad that's the that thing. it takes so we, that. It's how do you create a system that doesn't take civil war and revolt to adjust to allow the pressure to release, to react to, um, you know, what needs to be heard. Reforming the system, getting uh, as much money out of politics so that the person that doesn't want to run necessarily can run for politics because they're the right choice. They're the competent individual and they don't have to be a fundraising machine that is so good at just saying one thing and doing another that they can just be perpetually elected. It's almost like we need to build a mechanism into government where it's like, Okay, once every 20 years, every single person who is in the House of Representatives is gone, and we just got to vote all brand new ones in. And every single person who is in Congress is gone, and we just got to vote all brand new ones in. (laughs) Like, we need like a, a reset button to refresh everything and get like new people in there doing new shit so that like it's just not one person coming in attempting to f- turn the ship of 435 people, um, you know, and I know we have elections and a, a few new people come in and it goes back and forth and back and forth. But it's like, I mean, we have an election coming up and, and just generally starting to scratch the surface of, of um, talking about presidential candidates. And, um, you know, me, I was talking with somebody yesterday about Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian um, female who is running for president um, and talking to a female about it. And it's like, yeah, but like, if you don't vote for Biden, then you're voting for Trump. And it's like, okay, all right, well, that that's it then. I'm voting for Trump, I guess, by voting not for Trump by somebody who I actually think is a good decent, intelligent human being who genuinely wants what's best for you and me and the rest of the country, which I might be off on that, but I think it's a little, uh, this person cares. She cares a little more than, uh, you know, um, the anointed Joe Biden who was just given to him because he was the vice president. And it's like, that, that is not... I don't know. We <laughs> well, South Park said it best. South Park South Park said it best. It's it's the choice between a giant douche and a turd sandwich. <laughs> yeah. 
And if you don't vote for the giant douche, you're going to get the turd sandwich. But it's like, if we vote for the turd sandwich, we're going to get the giant douche. Like, I mean, you know, uh, that's why I love South Park. <laughs> I know. I know. You know but but anyway, so look, we got to cut it. Um, next time we can continue this conversation because I would like to talk about it more. And um, maybe next time... I, I don't know. We'll see what we do next time. Um, but at some point, I would like to start talking about the libertarian candidate, Joe. I don't know how much you know about her or don't know about I her. I wasn't even aware, so I would be very interested to talk yeah, uh, it just, about that. Yeah, uh, it just, uh, she was um, um, made their, I don't know, elect nominee, um, their nominee uh, about a week ago, I, I think eight days ago. Um, and so she's actually a social psychologist and she actually talks about Skinner and behaviorism and rewards and punishment and all these things. And so me being completely biased because that's what I do and what I love was immediately perked by her. Um, and uh, I mean, it sounds to me like she is genuinely trying to think of good solutions. Um, maybe a little idealistic, but at least she's not just going to go in and lie to you and give you the same shit. Anyways, getting into other stuff. Paul, you ready to call it an episode or do you have any last things to, to finish us off with? No, I think we've uh, covered about it all. I think it's good that we stop around the hour mark anyways. Otherwise, we can drone on forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is still so much to talk about it. And I oh, think yeah. coming back to this topic in a week with a little bit of fresh eyes um, might help us focus in our, our message a little bit of what we want to say. So, um, <clears throat> look... Uh, if there are things that you hear on here that you disagree with, want to comment on or whatever, I mean, reach out to us and let us know. We will address it on this podcast. Um, if don't hold back and do not hold back, I mean, people on the internet never hold back, Paul. Uh, yeah, they won't hurt our feelings though. I love constructive criticism, even if it's, you know, more on the negative side, like I don't mind it because it gives me the opportunity to reform my opinion if necessary and be yeah. more right than I think I already am, you know? <laughs> so, you know, but it's, it's good to tweak your opinion, especially if, uh, you end up being wrong. So I'm always open to, uh, to other people's thoughts and opinions. On that note, we're going to cut it here, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wayward Weekly. We'll see you next week. Wayward.